I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. Telling stories live is both the oldest form of entertainment, probably, and also a newish, thriving art form. In the Pacific Northwest, there are a whole range of storytelling series and events. These usually happen in a smallish venue, maybe a coffee shop. And needless to say, that has been interrupted. Bill Burnett is a storytelling coach and consultant. His company is called Stay Awesome. He organized a couple of virtual live story events in recent weeks, and we're going to hear some of them in a bit. Bill says he stumbled into this world mostly by accident. What really drew me to storytelling was, well, aside from that, I was going to meet somebody there who stood me up. But aside from that, what drew me to storytelling was uh, that first night I went, I stayed to watch the stories. And there was a, a fellow talking about something big that had happened that day all the emotions he'd been going through and how, and while he was on stage telling the story, he got a text from his mom that said, I just want you to know me and your sister love you no matter what. And it was like, Whoa, this is like, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Like the emotional honesty of it and the depth of it was just completely captivating. So I was really drawn in by that. It's a kind of a dumb question, but I mean, like when we had the COVID lockdowns come crashing down, what did that mean for the storytelling community and for our ability to make those events and make those connections? People were, of course, disappointed and watching shows close one by one. And uh, then people started bouncing around ideas for virtual shows. And I threw one out that people love, but I'm like, this is too much work. I can't do it. But I, I couldn't let it go. And eventually I did. And what was the experience of putting that together like and how was it different or similar to, um, you know, doing it live? Well, the workshops were actually great. Um, they were almost a little better than live because sometimes in live workshops, you're like at a coffee shop and everybody's a little self-conscious about their surroundings, etc. So here it was very private and everybody was very focused but the shows were different. They, you know, they all start as many shows do these days with, uh, is this, are we live? <laughs> Me trying to figure out the tech. All the of life is basically was... like trying to have a Skype call with your grandpa right now. Yeah, is it working? Exactly. You push the button. You're muted. I can't hear you. It froze. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we, um, but the, the show was good. There were really good shows and people appreciated them. It wasn't the same to me. You know, when you're when you're telling a story and you're looking at people and you're connecting with them and you're feeling the energy and you're seeing what they respond to, what they don't, uh, it's it's a very different experience. Uh, yeah, it's not the same. It's a it's a stopgap, right? So we're gonna hear a, a kind of adapted version of Sasha's story. Is there anything that you would want to say about it before we hear it? Sasha's an amazing storyteller and it was, and she really had us all when we were workshopping it. She goes, I don't know if this story makes any sense. It's just about my fiance and like, can I even be quarantined with this person? And we're all like on the edge of our seats, Sasha, you must go further with this story. Tell us. Fantastic. Well, so this is a story from the first virtual COVID storytelling event by uh, Seattle storyteller, Sasha M. My fiance Jeremy and I were pretty happy together and then COVID-19 happened and I started questioning, is this the person I really want to marry? Is this the person I want to be quarantined with? 
My story starts back in January when the virus was mostly in China. Jeremy took epic trips to the supermarket and stockpiled on rice, rubber gloves, and toilet paper. It's coming, he said, and it's coming fast. The virus is 10,000 miles away, I said. He showed me videos of people barricaded in their homes with bars and chains over their doors. That's going to happen to us, he said. That's media sensationalism, I said. It'll boil over in two weeks and some other story will take its place. One morning, I woke up to find him with tears in his eyes. He just watched a video of an old Chinese man laying in bed, gasping for breath, his wife next to him, crying, rubbing his belly. You are poisoning your mind, I said. Your fear is going to make you sick. And stop smoking. Cigarettes are what's going to kill you, not this virus. He flooded his Facebook wall with posts about the growing death toll, how the apocalypse was near. He sounded like his father, who often believes the world is ending and only his love of God would save him. Except Jeremy isn't religious, so according to him, the world would end and everyone would die. Friends started asking me if I was okay. Lizzie, a yoga teacher, said, I'm seeing a side of Jeremy that I didn't know before. She wasn't too worried about the virus. Again, this was in January when many of us thought coronavirus was like the flu. I know many people through yoga. The community is diverse. There are people of all shapes, sizes, ages. So I don't want to speak for everyone who's into yoga, but as a group, we tend to be pretty confident about our health, perhaps overconfident. If we get sick, we remind ourselves to breathe deeply. We take herbs and vitamin C. We like watching Gwyneth Paltrow. And we do more yoga. We join our hands at our third eye, the seat of intuition, and we might say things like, thank you universe for challenging us. Thank you coronavirus for reducing air pollution, for reminding us of our mortality, our humanity. Oh, thank you coronavirus. We are humbled by your strength. Now please go, leave in peace. So Brian, a manager of a yoga studio, recommended that everyone sage their homes and get thieves oil. This is something that you can get off Amazon. And according to legend in medieval France, there were these graveyard bandits who would take corpses from the grave. And to protect themselves from diseases, they would rub thieves oil all over themselves. And Brian claimed that this really worked. I just rub a few drops into my solar plexus, he wrote on Facebook. I almost never get sick. So my friends from yoga weren't worried about the virus, but they were worried about Jeremy's effect on me. Another friend texted me, is he driving you crazy? Yes. In February, he refused to go to a birthday party for our friend Beth, who invited a bunch of people to a casino. I decided to go without him, but before I left for the party, he gave me a bottle of hand sanitizer and a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask to a birthday party, I said. Again, this was in February. Wouldn't be until April 3rd that the CDC would make official recommendations for people to wear face coverings in public. As he urged me not to go, I said, we are going to have to agree to disagree. It's like we're in different political parties. You're a skinny ball version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm a middle-class Asian Maria Shriver. There is a huge gap 
between our beliefs that cannot be bridged. I drove to the casino with my friend Melissa, and we giggled about Jeremy's antics. But we were also a little bit nervous because by that point the virus was ravaging cruise ships. After I came home, I found Jeremy sulking in bed, his head poking out of the blanket. You're my vector of disease, he said. You expose yourself to countless people. At that point, the man I loved, the one who smiles so big, so easily, reminded me of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Instead of him looking at the ring and saying, oh, my precious, he was obsessed with the virus. I think you love this virus, I said. You love it and you pour all your energy into it. No, you don't get it, he said. I asked you to marry me because I want to dedicate my life to you, but you are going to get us both sick. I grew angry with him, angry at myself. Why had I gotten involved with this overly paranoid man? If he's this hypersensitive about coronavirus and he's this paranoid, you know, these qualities are probably gonna be <laughs> accentuated as we get older. So I thought, oh gosh, like if I can't live through this, then it's gonna be much harder as we get older. Why hadn't I fallen for someone like Brian, the yoga teacher, who is now flying off to Hawaii. Over the next few weeks, my feelings for Jeremy became as volatile as the stock market. Some days, I would be frustrated at him in the morning, then remorseful by noon, then frustrated and angry again, and then my feelings would rally by nightfall. I wondered, do I keep him? Do I let him go? And if I let him go, Will I see his stock rising again with someone else and regret what I lost, what could have been? So one day, after an argument, Jeremy said, I'll leave. Fine, leave, I said. You're robbing me of my joy. And then, sometime later, I thought, where would he go? I'd worry about him. Having to scrounge for a new apartment, having to get new furniture, what a hassle that would be. You know, especially now that he was afraid to be exposed to so many people and get coronavirus. I didn't want him to suffer like that. And if I dug deeply, the reason I wasn't with somebody else was that I like Jeremy a lot more than I like most other people. When he wasn't acting like Gollum, oh, my precious virus, he was funny, sexy, and smart. So I followed my own directive. I agreed to disagree. Sometimes this was very difficult and it made me feel sad. But then something started to shift. And now that we've been in lockdown, my friends and I realized that Jeremy wasn't crazy. He was just an early adopter. My fiance was right. He was social distancing way before it was cool. COVID-19 is dangerous, but it didn't kill our relationship. I'm now actually concerned about my health. I've had GI issues for the past two weeks. And several other yoga teachers have also been sick too. I'm not sure if this is a sign of coronavirus because it turns out stomach cramps and diarrhea are the main symptoms for some people. 
or if this is because I've eaten 10 pounds of the emergency granola and chocolate that Jeremy had stockpiled. I told Jeremy that I should self-isolate just in case this was serious. I'll sleep in the small room, I said. No, he said, if you have it, then I have it. We'll get through it together. He hugged me tight. I tell him, we are going to remember this time for the rest of our lives. That was Seattle-based storyteller Sasha Im adapting her story first told at the virtual event Quarantine Connection. Susan Fee also shared a story there over Zoom. She's a Seattleite and a therapist, and early on, she was not on board with this video chat stuff. I'm sitting in my home office, staring at my computer screen. I've got my headset on, and I'm just about to turn the camera on. I just can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe that as a counselor, I'm actually going to be doing virtual sessions, telehealth, because the thing is, I just don't believe in it. About five years ago, there were a bunch of ads on the radio that I used to hear, and then I would get email solicitations about being a counselor anytime, anywhere. You could text with your clients. You could be in anonymous chat rooms. It sounded like dating, online dating for counselors. It just sounded bad. And while I do know that there are some populations that definitely benefit from telehealth, like rural areas or people who actually can't leave their house, I just don't think it's the best idea for most people. I really believe in the personal connection of being in the same room with somebody. And so the fact that this pandemic is making me do something I don't believe in, I I can't believe I have to do this couple of days before our office shut down and all of the counselors are just kind of scrambling, trying to figure out how are we going to do this? Like, what are the rules? Nobody knows the rules. Do you have audio? Do you have video? Is email? Can you do that? What platform is protected? And then the thing is, every state has their own rules and every insurance company has their own rules. It was a mess. And I went to go talk to one of my male colleagues and I asked him how he's doing and did he figure it out? And he said, I'm just doing phone calls. And I said, no, you can't. You can't. Washington State, you have to have video. And he looked at me and he said, I have 16-year-old girls as clients. I am not clicking on a camera to offer them therapy in their bedroom. And I got it. I mean, we all kind of had to set up our own boundaries. So here I am doing the thing I don't want to do. And I start to click on the camera. And there are my people. (laughs) There are my people. And I'm so happy to see them. It turns out they're pretty happy to connect with me too. And I'm seeing things I wouldn't normally, like the social distancing actually ended up creating some pretty intimate moments of meeting everybody's pets and seeing their artwork and having them play guitar for me. Um, They showed me their balconies. They showed me their decks. I've had counseling in a lot of cars because it turns out that with everybody home, they can't find private space. It hasn't been all bad. But then I finally got to the client that I was most worried about, a person who would gladly stay in always. A person who would gladly not shower, 
with social anxiety combined, gladly not step out, gladly have the world come in. It's the exact reason this person needs to get up and come to an office because on some days that would be the most celebrated thing, a good thing. So we connect, but all I can hear is audio. And I asked my client, hey, can you turn on your camera? And I get a pause. And I start again. It's just that I, I really need to see you. That's part of the whole thing. And there's a lot of hesitation. And then finally, the picture comes on and my client is in bed and it's jolting. And I think back to my male colleague and I know exactly what he was saying. It's too awkward. And I asked my client, hey, is it okay if you just get up and maybe go to a chair and then we can talk there? And then another pause. And the answer is, I can't do that. Okay, why can't you do that? And I'm worried about depression. And my client says, because there's no path from my bed to the chair. And what I'm learning that I had not learned before is that my client also hoards. And through the session, we get to a moment where we build enough trust and I'm able to have the camera on the floor so I can see that things are at least knee high. So we do a whole nother kind of session that I never would have done before. We start to clean and we start to process the feelings and we do a trash bag at a time and we talk about the things that the trauma caused and the reason for the hoarding. And I'm realizing that this is the best therapy that this client could have had. And I never ever would have known that had I not been forced into telehealth. Normally when I'm in my office before I go get a client, I just say a really short prayer and I ask for three things. I ask for humility, I ask for wisdom, and I ask to remain open to the lessons that this client is here to teach me. Today, I say the same prayer. It's just I say it right before I click connect. That was a story told live in the COVID storytelling event uh, by Seattle storyteller and therapist Susan Fee. And uh, I'm here with Bill Burnett, who organized that event. And Bill, the, Susan's story, among other things, is about finding these unexpected moments of very potent connection, even remotely, even over video chat, which is how I'm talking to you right now. Um, and I wonder if that is something that resonated with you, even though this is not like the optimal way to actually be with one another. Yeah, it completely resonates. And it was new when she did that story. At first, uh, the concept was new to me, but I loved the hopefulness of it. This idea that maybe this is going to create new kinds of connection, deeper connections or more connections. And for me, that's really been true. I've expanded doing more workshops and I've created other uh, regular events now. And so I find that my social world is expanding pretty rapidly during this time. So it, it was unexpected, uh, but it's really been uh, a delight. Like I, maybe I don't, I, I miss doing a show for a live audience, but everything else that I do 
working on projects, creative projects, connecting with people, talking to old friends, all that stuff seems to be happening more and, and just as good, if not better. Yeah. Uh, what's your sense of how people are using or thinking of storytelling as a way to process and, and kind of cope during this time? I mean, it feels like people are feeling compelled to reach out with stories. People are feeling compelled to reach out with stories. And what I'm saying is the stories may not be specifically about COVID, but because we are in a global pandemic and we all face a lot of uncertainty and a different, you know, and just when will we be able to go outside if nothing else. And uh, so people are bringing stories uh, that kind of go to the heart of their emotional core, stories about their parents, stories about their childhood, stories, really meaningful stories. You can tell that the stuff that's coming up for a lot of people is the, uh, it's kind of like they're getting to their core emotions and bringing that out in stories is a great way for them to like get, get some perspective around it and also to connect with people, like to be, to be heard. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the things that aren't directly connected to to COVID or quarantine or whatever, even those feel like they are part of a shared experience right now, because I think we're all going to these places emotionally, even when we're not thinking about the fact that there's a coronavirus epidemic going on. Agree completely. Yeah, I think there's sort of a an understanding, like when people are in some sort of a really scary situation together, they bond. And I think that kind of bonding is happening. And when people get together for to work on stories, they're like more willing to share their, uh, you know, really deep stuff. And they're getting to it maybe in their own mind a little bit more easily than they have before. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks, Gabriel. Burnett is a storytelling coach and consultant. There aren't any more COVID storytelling events on the calendar right now, but Bill's still offering free workshops online, and you can get more info on that at stayawesome.com. A quick thank you to everyone who has left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't gotten around to it yet, well, please consider getting around to it. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Kevin Kniestead, and Jennifer Wing. We get web help from Kari Plogue. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. And hey, there's something specific I want to ask you for. We'd like to hear something that's brought you joy over the last month or two. It could be a moment, it could be a piece of music or a weird hobby, whatever. Grab your smartphone and record a voice memo of yourself telling us a little story about it. Or even better, record it actually happening. Make sure to introduce yourself with your name and city at the beginning and then email it to outreach at knkx.org. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission. Transmission.